Hi, I'm Nick. I'm Rory. And I'm Jay. And this is Midnight Chats, an Octivigan companion show where we sit down with your favorite paranormal authors, investigators, and researchers and have a chat about their work, the phenomenon, and all the strangeness in between. On this episode, we are joined by author and academic Peter Biebergall. So that was fun. It was a lot of fun. That, that was awesome. Once again, we have had a guest on the show that makes me feel so stupid. <laughs> I, that's gonna. I feel like that's gonna happen a lot for us. Oh, he is a uh, ridiculously smart, very, very insightful. Uh, he comes at the occult from a different angle than anyone we talked to before. Yeah, no, uh, for sure. Very uh, kind of high conceptual intellectual way of looking at it mm. and i dig it it's a it's a, a fresh perspective to the phenomenon in general yeah and he's a thinker and you can tell in just the way that he, the way that he articulates himself and for those at home who are wondering who is peter biebergall you should already know because we've covered two of his books on our show but as a refresher uh he was the author of strange frequencies which i believe we covered on our third episode yep. third episode ever and he was also the author of Season of the Witch, uh, the topic of episode 21, which came out last week. Yep. Uh, no, I, th I thought this was a great time. I really hope you guys are going to enjoy it. So are you guys ready to get in? Yep. All right, let's go talk to Peter Biebergall. Let's go. We are on the line with Peter Biebergall. Hey, Peter, thank you for joining us tonight. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. So getting right into it, um, the first question is one that we like to ask all our guests as we are a book club, which is what are you currently reading and what sorts of books do you tend to gravitate towards? Good question. I am currently reading Achilles by uh, Madeline Miller. She also wrote Circe. Okay. I don't know if you've heard of I, I um, have, yeah. Either of these Cersei's incredible, uh, one of my favorite novels of the last couple of years, and and before that she wrote Achilles. I am also reading a science fiction novel out loud with my wife called "The Luminous Dead," and sort of a claustrophobic um, cave dwell it you know cave uh spelunking science fiction novel uh caitlin starling is the author of that and then i tend to read fiction like i have to have a novel going all the time mm -hmm. and then i have a stack of nonfiction that i'm kind of you know moving through and it could be anything from a book on uh the history of kabbalah to something on um quantum physics or I also always have an ongoing stack of comic books. I'm actually about to turn 55 and I have been, turns out I've been buying uh, comic books from the same comic shop here in Cambridge, Massachusetts for about 40 years. Oh, wow. So, uh, I, I bet every yeah. store owner wishes they had more customers like you. Oh, that's very cool. And I heard a couple of books in there. I'm going to have to add to my list. And uh, your reading habits are much in line with ours as we're always reading for the podcast. And I know me, I always also keep a novel going. Yep. Same. I always, if nothing else, I have an audiobook for some kind of fiction that I, I'm listening to. I get a little nervous if I don't have a novel mm -hmm. yep. at the ready. I totally understand that. So getting into your books uh we've covered two of your books on our show strange frequencies and season of the witch uh and we did them a little out of order we did strange frequencies first and then we did season of the witch um but in both the occult imagination is central to your exploration of the relationship between the viewer and occult beliefs so in your own words for those at home who might be unfamiliar with the topic how would you define the occult imagination so i think part of it the part of trying to define the occult imagination is really trying to define both of those terms. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about the occult, we're really talking about an entire spectrum of 
uh, symbols, beliefs, practices, his- mythologies, histories, right? Whether it's a, uh, whether it's a, a academic history of the Rosicrucian Brotherhood or a Masonic ritual that purports to actually use Rosicrucian uh, symbols to a, uh, an organization like Amorph that would claim true lineage to the um, uh, supposed actual brotherhood. Mm-hmm. So even just something like the word Rosicrucian doesn't have a single definable uh, me, you know, uh, meaning, right? It's it's a it's a it's a, a spectrum of different things, and the same goes with with any beliefs that one might have or or ideas one might have about um, a specific occult practices, whether you are somebody who's a pagan, uh, a Wiccan practitioner, or somebody who is a scholar of uh, history. And so there's also, there's that. Then there's also maybe the artist that uses these ideas to express something for themselves that they're trying to get to with their art. So the occult becomes kind of a vehicle, right, for getting across a certain idea through a particular set of symbols and ideas. Then you have people who are entirely skeptical about the whole thing. I always find what's interesting, though, about... um, Religious skeptics, uh, in particular, is that, or people who are, you know, uh, claim to be atheists, still spend a lot of time thinking and talking about religion, right? Mm-hmm. So there's oh, yeah. still something about these ideas, whether we're talking about, and in some ways, really, I would say the occult imagination is really just a subset of maybe what we might just generally call the religious imagination, right? Which just has to do with our relationship to the notions of the divine or something that extends beyond ourselves. So, so there's that. I mean, one of the examples I've used, and I've, I've used this in a number of interviews, so um, if you've heard it before, but I like to talk about the kid who's in the ba- in, his, in his or her basement listening to the heavy metal album that has the pentagram on the album cover, and the parents are upstairs wailing about how Satan is able to now exploit their soul because of this music. And the kid themselves really just feels like this is kind of an empowering rebellious thing that it's like an f you to society and mm. you feel they feel charged by what they perceive as some magical current that flows through the record and then you have the record producer uh, the marketing person hey guys maybe we should put an upside down pentagram on your album cover mm. you know because that's a cool thing to do and so you have this symbol which maybe one might argue is is empty of uh, except for the meaning that we impose on it is able to withstand all these different kinds of meanings, right? It really can can take all of that. It still maintains sort of its integrity. So I think there's something really interesting and potent about the way these particular what we call the occult beliefs and practices are able to. Uh, carry all of these ideas all of these uh interactions with with culture and with and with um people's own beliefs or their own non-beliefs and on the other side of that is just our imagination and i think what's important about the word imagination is we often use it colloquially to mean something that we made up we imagine that it happened but actually you know if we think a little bit more about what that word really means the imagination is in some ways the the um, the playground right of our of our consciousness where all ideas are generative everything that we are as a people a civilization our art our culture our architecture everything arises out of out of a moment of imagining and so combined I really think again that the occult imagination is not are a false thinking about a false thing, right? Mm-hmm. It's a creative thinking about something that itself has all these various uh, facets to it. 
And I think that's really the only way to talk about it because otherwise we're going to get stuck in a conversation about is it true or not right. true? Mm-hmm. Are these things real or not real? And honestly, that's, I think, the least interesting conversation to have about these things. Because if you believe, then you believe, and then that's it. And we either believe together or we don't. And then mm-hmm. it's a matter of everyone's trying to convince the other. Um, and if you don't believe this thing is true, now that doesn't mean that I don't have my own beliefs about these things, and I'm happy to talk about those. But they aren't necessarily, I try, I mean, I guess my own beliefs in these things maybe give away insofar as that if I didn't think that there was something at stake here, I wouldn't spend all my time thinking and writing about it, right? So right. Um, I'm not, it would be, you know, so, so there's something, something meaningful for me in that regard as well. But at the same time, my belief or disbelief, I, I try not to inform um, what I want to say about these things. And so the other thing that which I'd, I'd like to hear your thoughts on, too, is sometimes I think that I am, and I know there's others, sort of, I don't mean to say I, like I'm the only one who sort of approaches things in this way, but just to say that my experience has been, I may not be skeptical enough for the skeptics, and I may not be... Um, it, trying to be uh, to prove things as much as the believers would like, I guess. So mm-hmm. I get stuck sort of in that in that space, and I don't. Um, it's it's an interesting thing. I, I'm not a scholar, you know. I'm not. Uh, I'm a. I I I wouldn't even know what to call myself really in terms of how I approach these things, except this sort of a um, an interested critic, <laughs> you know. Um, and so, but I do think that again, that the, the way to do that is to treat it as phenomena, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that the, the thinking about it as the imagination is is the way to do that. I guess safely, maybe is the word to use. Well, and um, I mean, I know me personally, I also fall somewhere in that middle ground. I probably lean now since starting this show more towards the believer end because I've been immersed in it and reading all this evidence and research and things like that about ghosts and UFOs and all of that. So uh, that definitely has tilted things. But I I do understand where you're coming from. Um, For a long time, I felt very firmly sandwiched between not thinking the Jersey Devil is real, but thinking probably UFOs are something. Um, (laughs) Right. Right. Or whether they're real or not real, there's something about this there's something about the UFO as a phenomena that plays on our consciousness in a way that is undeniable. Yeah, a- absolutely. Right? So, yeah, no, that is a frequent topic of conversation where UFOs come up of are these physical craft or manifestations of consciousness or because yeah. they're definitely interacting with them in some way. But before we get too off off track, um, I did want to ask you. So what still draws you to the topic of the occult, given all the research you've done? And uh, as part of this, if you would like to uh, go a little bit more into what you were saying earlier regarding your personal beliefs. Yeah, I mean, so what keeps attracting me? I mean, I mean, it's hard to, I guess, explain why something feels it resonates aesthetically. Mm -hmm. I mean, I just, you know, I mean, I, (laughs) I was just thinking the other day about uh, for uh, for another project, I was looking at um, the medieval grimoire called the Key of Solomon, the King, mm-hmm. and it has the uh, seals, the planetary seals with the angels' names on them. And gosh, I just I I could stare at those things all day. I just <laughs> yeah. love looking. I mean, they are just part of the the kind of uh, flora and fauna of my of my imagination, you know, of my, my consciousness, they just, and it, part of it is just what I was, what I was interested in when I was younger and just kept sort of pursuing. And again, whether, you know, I, do I think these things reference a real, uh, spiritual realm? So that's, that's an interesting question. Um, uh, I will say that my interest in them is not dependent on the answer to that question. Okay. Right? Yeah. But I will say, that I think that, um, I mean, the best way for me to talk about what I believe is to say that I don't think that consciousness is a, uh, accidental mutation of our brain. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Right. And, and if you start there, there's all kinds of things that we can extrapolate from that. It probably means that I believe that I would say that I believe in a transcendent sort of reality. Mm-hmm. The thing for me, though, which is the most important is, is that I, only, I think that the only way we can interact with that transcendent, transcendent reality is via symbols, metaphor, dream, mythology, ritual. I don't think there's any one-to-one correlation. Um, and so my own life is about uh, trying to, you know, build for myself a series of metaphors, rituals, myths. Yeah, <laughs> right? yeah, yeah absolutely. They most closely kind of uh, draw down or, or, or elevate me uh, to being in some kind of communion with, with that with that thing um and usually in the end it's more serendipitous than anything else right it's synchronicity the more i try to make something happen the less it happens it's when i'm not looking for it right Mm -hmm. that we end up being kind of and so i think in in the books that i've written you know a lot of what i'm also looking for is for is those experiences in others and i and i do think that there's something particular about popular music specifically rock and roll i think there's a lot of ways in which our interactions with technologies have allowed for those those kinds of moments i think anything that acts as a medium right literally to kind of it's almost like what we're trying to do is like there's a there's a particular shaped hole and we're always trying to kind of um Maybe a hole's on the right word. Maybe it's like a screen of some kind. And we're always trying to kind of press our consciousness into it, you know? Mm. And, and there are certain things that really do for me like a really good job of that, whether it's, you know, listening to David Bowie's or John Coltrane mm. or, um, you know, a, a particular poem or a particular painting or a particular moment in, in the world, right? So on that note, uh, one thing we couldn't help but notice is that you are a fellow fan of Dungeons and Dragons Um, and a a player. Yeah. Yeah. So one thing we wanted to ask was uh, much like how some artists try to use music as a spiritual tool to kind of engage that occult imagination. uh, Do you think that something similar can happen with role playing games? Like, do you think D&D specifically has the potential to engage the occult imagination of the player? Yes. And, and in fact, um, my, uh, friend Gareth Brandwin and I, Gareth is a sort of known in the sort of hacker maker, cyber culture, cyberpunk culture world. Um, uh, he writes for Boing Boing and sort of part okay. of that, that mm-hmm. world. He was one of the uh, founders of Make Magazine. In any case, he and I are working together on just this idea which is can it it sort of goes back and forth it's one how is role-playing like magic Mm -hmm. generally Mm -hmm. and i think that has a lot to do with both of those things happen i think when they in an arena of of play right Mm -hmm. um in a sort of uh, taking on a kind of a, a different um, garment, as it were, right? I mean, a lot of occult practices talk about sort of the God form, right? We are sort of trying to imitate the God through these sort of rituals. And I also think that they are, they also share a lot of similar activities, whether it's uh, divination via dice, mm-hmm. right? I mean... Oh, that's a good point. I never thought of that. I mean, Monopoly. Right. Just think about Monopoly. I mean, when you play Monopoly and you roll the dice, you're within the context of Monopoly, you are defining the next outcome. Right. And then you yourself as the player are only have your choices based on the outcome of that dice roll. Mm -hmm. And you can fudge it and you could say, well, if it fell off the table, then it doesn't count or. Uh, you know, there's sort of all the, or if it did fall off the table and you like the role, it still counts. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah. But there's this way in which anytime we're using dice in a game or anytime we're using what, um, 
what people, some people call sortilege or some kind of randomized thing in the context of a game within the, within the, within the, 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 the playscape of that game. That's, that's either you either give over to that system or you don't. Cause if you don't give over to it, then you might as well just decide what you want the outcome to be. Right. right. But if you're going to let the dice rule in that sense, then your decisions are going to have to be um, in response to whatever the, the role of the dice were. And that's a, that's, that's divination. Right? Yeah. That's a divinatory system. And so what we are, what I think, what, what Gareth and I are trying to do, for example, is trying to see how can the tools both, can the tools of role playing be used to generate magical, imaginative effects okay. um, and the other way around can the tools of magic be used to generate role-playing you know sort of effects in that regard i absolutely believe that they exist sort of on the same i think that role-playing and magic or cult practices exist in some ways on the same sort of level of consciousness like the same frequency well i mean certainly there are people that play D much more just like a war game and that's mm -hmm. fine mm -hmm. right and then there are total story games but i don't think story games can be as magic i don't personally i, I mean i i'm sure people feel i don't want to disparage anybody as i'm saying but like a story game say that doesn't use dice at all may not allow for the kinds of serendipitous moments that random tables necessitate, right? A absolutely. Um, and I think that that's a big, big, but, and again, it's not, it wouldn't necessarily just be D and D, but any, any game, I think any role playing game that, that, that would have that as part of it. I like the, the combination of like, cause I, I like with, with D and D and like any of the role playing games, I like story heavy games, but I want the, like the storyteller, the DM to be flexible in, we're not going to necessarily abide by whatever the story is as, as it was written because the dice don't always allow for that, you mm -hmm. know, what it, whatever it might be. And I think it's, I think it was so interesting what you said about like dice with like the actual act of it inside the game is divination because I hadn't thought about it like that. And I've been playing these games forever and I'm also on the side, like loosely studying, uh, like how, like actual, like the dice divination techniques that were used forever ago and all that. And it's like, yeah. I didn't even, I didn't even put that connection together. And it's like, how many times have I yelled at the dice gods for my <laughs> bad roles? Yeah, right, you know, exactly. exactly. Now, what um, systems are you all into these days? Uh, we, so we play some D and D. Uh, we are currently in the middle of an evil campaign, which is a first <laughs> for me. Yeah, a lot um, of fun. And yeah. um, we also play in White Wolf's World of Darkness system. Uh, oh, yeah. Modern Gothic horror settings. We do New World. So uh, we, we Chronicles of Darkness, as they call it now. Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah. Which is a ton of fun. Um, and I mean, I, before I played Shadowrun and things like that, we were all we are all veterans to tabletop. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we've got, we've got all sorts of different books lying around here. Like I even bought the. The the there's a video game that came out called Sea of Thieves came out a few years ago. I have the tabletop oh, yes. game. Yeah. I have the tabletop yep. game that they made uh, alongside that. I bought it because they did like a Kickstarter or something, and it's a cool looking game. I haven't been able to play it yet, but <laughs> yeah, you you like pirates more than the rest of us. That's why that is it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so though something else that you said uh, kind of struck a thought with me. You know, players we take on these roles to kind of inhabit that magical landscape, right? And similarly, uh, some artists that we read about in Season of the Witch did something similar with like David Bowie or Kiss taking on these personas to kind of harness their mythic resonance. And one thing that we talked about quite a bit uh, after we read the book was the concept of a shadow name in occultism. So, the, you know, the name the Magus takes on in order to separate their work from their personal life. Like a freighter. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, right. do you see all these as part of the same kind of tradition or are there any uh, differences that you would see? Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, I think that's a good, I think it's a very nice connection to think about the stage name um, sort of in that way. And I, I think they probably cross 
wire around sort of just the archetypes of, you know, um, that we don the mask, right? I think, you know, one of the things I use, um, a lot in the discussion of, in, in the book season of the witch and in other discussions is the notion that, you know, rock and roll as theater and theater as having its origins in the cult of Dionysus. Mm-hmm. And the cult of Dionysus is one where the initiation, uh, you are initiated by the viewing of the performance of the play. That's how the initiation takes place. And the essential feature of that is the mask, right? The, the, the God cannot descend. It's not that the mask, when the, when the, when the actor wears, say, the mask of the God, that they are pretending to be the God so that people will. It's that the ma- the, the God cannot descend until the mask is donned, right? That's when that happens. Um, and so, and the mask is also, of course, something that faces the audience. So it has mm-hmm. to be, you have to bear witness to it. So there's that relationship. There right? has to be that relationship between the source of mysticism and the viewers. That's right. Absolutely. And so when you think about what you're saying now, I wonder in the terms of the, of the shadow name, if that really resonates more in the context of group magical work mm-hmm. than it might in solitary work i don't mm-hmm. know but i would say that for say somebody like david bowie when he is ziggy or when he is aladdin sane or the thin white duke that without the audience that thing cannot be activated right that persona cannot the out the alchemical process cannot finally take shape until there is the audience right you need the initiates right to uh, fulfill the whole cycle, the whole sort of mythic cycle. To follow a metaphor that you used in Strange Frequencies, it completes the circuit. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. Okay. Right. Interesting. Well, thank you for that. So speaking of rock stars and their stage personas, um, Season of the Witch is all about uh, arguing that the occult is kind of the spiritual foundation of the rock and roll genre and kind of ultimately helped shape its history and its evolution into what it is now. Um, we were wondering, do you think that rock and roll has had an inverse effect on the occult and that it has kind of created, helped create the modern occult community or has had some kind of distinguishable impact on it? Um, it's a good question. And I, I would say, you know, one of the things I want to say too, and I appreciate your opening thoughts there. I think that thinking about the occult and rock and roll as foundational is, is one of a number, right? Of, of, of things. I would say though that one of the things that surprised me in writing the book was tracing, uh, some of the ways in which we talk about rock and roll and its histories with the connection to the blues and the blues history to African-American music mm-hmm. and to the ways in which those non-Christian traditions were manifested in a lot of that. And, and so what you end up with is, you know, you end up with something that's kind of a historical insofar as there are real histories, but then again, there's also these archetypes that keep showing up. And then there's also just the ways that our, that we keep interacting with it, where our consciousness keeps interacting with it. And so to your question, uh, what's, what's interesting about that is that rock and roll has certainly become a vehicle for artists to explore Again, these ideas, whether they themselves are practitioners or not. I mean, that's the other, I think, really important thing. I know a lot of what might be called artist practitioners who actually have a magical practice and are also artists. I also know scholar practitioners, people who study the occult in a very studious way, but themselves are also practitioners. But I think that one of the things that you have with 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 artists, and especially with rock and roll, is that 
the music and the practice are the thing. There right. isn't a distinction. There isn't, did Jimmy Page actually ever try to perform any sort of Crowleyan ritual? I mean, I guess we'll never know. Right. right. Um, there's no evidence of it. And he's never claimed to, as much as when he was younger, he talked a lot about Alistair Crowley and talked a lot about these ideas. He never made mention of his own practice. And I know that later in his life, when asked about it, you know, he would, there's a very funny interview where somebody says, even in his up into his sixties, they ask him about his interest in the occult. And he says, how come nobody ever asked me about my interest in pre-Raphaelite paintings? <laughs> like, <laughs> I like all, I'm interested in all kinds of things, you know? Um, but as a, as a young musician, he did make a big deal of it, right? So it would make sense that somebody would ask. But so, but for him, I think, you know, the music, the lifestyle, um, the glamour, the things that people thought about them, even less than what was true about them, are still the way all of what we know as the occult is shaped. Mm -hmm. So I don't think that rock and roll did much in terms of the actual practice of magic for people who are practitioners, but I think it has a lot to do with all the various ways in which um, we interact with these ideas and these symbols. And it's, it was, it, but it's also back and forth, right? So the musician, if you are a musician, say you're young, like Jimmy Page, you come from a working class background, you're suddenly rich beyond your wildest dreams, but you're rich not because of accident, but because the thing that you are doing really is shaping culture. I mean, you really are in it and you, maybe you don't call yourself a genius, but other people are calling you a genius and you're 23 years old and you can feel that what you're doing as a musician, as an artist is not traditional, is almost heterodox, is pushing up against sort of what would be considered traditional ways of doing the things you're doing. And then your lyrics are starting to draw from, you know, everything from, um, uh, British mythology to Tolkien, a <laughs> sort of wrapping this all together into this mystique. And you yourself as an individual want to have a spiritual life that, you know, you might still want to connect to some spiritual idea. It only makes sense that you would look to something that itself looked like at it in its time was doing the same thing you are. Pushing up against non-traditional, you know, pushing up against traditional ideas about what religion and belief should be. Um, being more libertine when it comes to ideas about sex and drugs. Um, maybe being somewhat of a, of a scoundrel or a, in society or being scandalous or, you know, we know that that we know that, um, some of the most important, um, modern Classical composers like Satie and Ravel, that they were uh, part of Rosicrucian organizations. They, mm -hmm. you know, again, they were pushing up against normative ways of doing things with their art. But for their own spiritual lives, they wanted something that would match that. It, you know, it's, it's not, it seems to me perfectly reasonable that Jimmy Page would become enamored with Crowley. Right. right. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And then does that then inform him and his music and the way that we understand them and all of that? So I think, yes, to your question, absolutely. But I think it's a, it's a back and forth. It's, mm -hmm. you know, it's sort of this things are, are shaping each other mm -hmm. as they go. Um, and it's different now because, you know, the rock and roll, the musician is not the Dionysian god. Anymore. I mean, I, you can watch, watch a video of, of Robert Plant and Jimmy Page in the seventies and Robert Plant standing in, in his, in his high heels and his, uh, his shirtless with his vest mm -hmm. on and his tight jeans and his hair. I mean, 
I just don't think you could ever do anything like that. It would look, if you did that now, you would say the person is kind of being ironic or it's, right. you would say it's just an homage to that. Like mm-hmm. you can't do that again. Yeah. And that's not to say that there aren't musicians that aren't breaking new molds. I think we're seeing that in, in places though that are not necessarily, we would, we would say are part of any occult current, but. Right. Well, in a modern context, I think probably the closest we'd have would be bands like Daft Punk. I know they just broke up, but the whole character of the helmets never taking them off. That's right. Yeah. I mean, a little bit ghost. Yeah. Yeah. Ghost for sure. Yeah. You know, but well, I think that they're also a little bit, um, I don't say, I mean, gimmicky is a strong word, but it doesn't. It doesn't feel dangerous. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's kind of accurate, though. Like, you know? like Lordy or Guar, the monster bands who are yeah. play metal and monster makeup. It's not really hearkening to any, you know, occult tradition. It's more, hey, aren't monsters cool? Right, and- right, right. But then listen to um, a hip hop band called Shabazz Palaces. I don't know if you know them. No, and this is like Afrofuturism. Uh, stuff that you you listen to them and you really feel like you're hearing music that's been sent back to us from the future. You know? yeah. I mean, there are still musicians that are really breaking through in ways. Uh, but again, it doesn't carry that same sort of media, right? Uh, where the media gets into it and it's, you know, reporters in the Beatles. Right. It, I mean, in John Lennon, Yoko Ono's bedroom. You know? Yeah. Like, it's just, we don't, doesn't, we don't have that to speak around rock and roll anymore. So what we have now is we have bands that actually do seem to be more linked to, um, ways in which their, pr- the practice and the music, um, uh, are linked. Now, there are examples of actual, you know, practitioner musicians, mm-hmm. um, we can look back, you know, probably to like the eighties and nineties, like Coil and mm, yeah. um, Psychic TV, right? And Toby and things like that. Um, and Genesis Peorge. And there are bands today. I can't name escapes me, but there's a, a band of, uh, they're a pagan band and they do full on pagan rituals. They wear masks and, um, I'll, I'll get you the name and then you could put it in the, the notes maybe for the, uh, absolutely for the show. But there's definitely, you know, bands that are, are crisscrossing. Uh, unfortunately, we're seeing a lot of that happening in, uh, sort of, uh, occult fascist circles. Unfortunately, uh, there are, you know, the, uh, what are called certain neo folk bands, um, and certain metal bands, right, that are really trying to bridge the music with a certain kind of belief and a certain kind of practice. Um, but they're veering into something that feels uh, a little bit more sinister. Yeah. Um, and maybe, uh, you know, again, a little more fascistic than um, probably the kinds of things that we, you know, want to. There's been a, a, giant increase in the number of like Viking metal bands that have popped yes, up yeah. in the past like 10, yeah. 15 years or so. Yeah. And, and like the first couple of bands like that, that I'd heard were mostly doing it as like an act, you know, it was like just for fun. They were just making music, whatever, like, uh, uh, not, not Viking, but making me think of like, um, ale storm, ale storm, yeah. the pirate metal band. Um, you know, they're, they're kind of like on the same wavelength. But in the last few years, I, I there has been like this increase of, you know, because the Norse pagan community has exploded in the last, you know, 10, 15 years. And with yep. that, there's been the, the Norse pagan bands that have associated, that have come up too. Unfortunately, many of them are associated with Nazis. Yeah, that is the unfortunate <laughs> yeah. side. I, I actually know someone who was... um well, she is she she is culturally Jewish. She was a Norse pagan and she essentially she got driven out of the Norse pagan community because it just became so anti-Semitic. She f- no longer felt safe. She she deconverted out of being an Odin worshiping pagan. I oh. watched this happen in real time. It was horrible. Oh, that's unfortunate. Yeah. OK, well, uh, thank you for that answer. 
Now, we do have a couple of questions we wanted to ask about strange frequencies just because, I mean, Season of the Witch is fresher in our brain and we had more questions about that. But um, we really did enjoy strange frequencies. And one of the things in that book that we were quite taken by was your idea of hacking as a sort of means of stimulating that occult imagination. Looking back now on Season of the Witch, do you see hacking or making as a key element in how any of that music interfaced with the occult? I'm thinking about things like cut-ups or synthesizers. Oh, yeah, that's a great question. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's what a lot of what um, Coyle uh, was interested in. Uh, I think the whole idea of um, there's a, and I think I talk about him at Strange Frequencies, there's an artist named Kim Cascone. Um, and he talks about glitch as a form of divination, mm. where the accidents that come through, say, when you're producing or when you're mixing or when you're, especially with analog electronics, right, you're going to get all kinds of extra noises that those are opportunities to use those as moments of, of um, that those then become the thing you follow mm -hmm. instead of dismissing them or erasing them or deleting them you you follow the, that path okay right so it, it leads you to something else um and yeah i mean and then i think there's just you know we wouldn't have used the words at the time but i mean i think bowie hacked himself he hacked his own consciousness and i mean i talk about him a lot because i feel like he really is representative of what we mean when we define magic as the art and science of causing change to occur according to will right i mean absolutely he, that's yeah. exactly what his the, the 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 mix of his performance his music the identity all of that and it really did transform culture I mean, it really did it transformed the landscape of popular music right mm -hmm. and so there's a, a way in which those things so there's both the literal that you're talking about which i think is absolutely also um right on and um and then there's sort of just that more metaphorical sense in which you know the the the, the musician that really is making those changes is somebody who is kind of uh yeah i sort of use it as a funny expression but sort of you know um breaking the terms of the of the warranty you know, <laughs> yeah. yeah so taking what is the agreed upon way in which you're supposed to do something and doing it completely differently that's what the hacker is right mm -hmm. it's interesting especially uh your your comment there about bowie hacking himself because I, I never thought about it that way mm -hmm. um especially and that takes on an interesting connotation when you think about the fact that he did that to the point of self-destruction, yeah. uh, fragmented himself until the device no longer worked. It, it broke. That's right. And he knew that. And he, I mean, he, unlike a lot of people, was able to recover. Mm -hmm. Now, actually, I had a question which I, I'm, I wanted to pick your brain about because I was curious. So obviously your book takes us up through around the 1980s. Um Thinking ahead towards Bowie's later work, I'm especially thinking about his last album. I think it was called Black Star. Do you yeah. see uh, anything in his later work which kind of harkened back to those occult roots? Well, he definitely does. I mean, it's all over Black Star. Yeah. Um, so I think he was been very much. I mean, there were some ways in which I think he knew that was his last album because mm -hmm. he knew he was sick. Yeah. Um, and I think he really was trying to close the <laughs> close the circuit, <laughs> you know, to use that expression again, you know, uh, to bring it all to bear again. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, he became, I, th I think, much more interested in, in uh, Buddhist thought and practice mm -hmm. end of his life. Uh, but, you know, it's a path. Like, I don't think nothing, uh, you don't erase anything from your path, right? Everything is a, it's a journey is a step along the way. Yeah. You don't regret any of the. I mean, I don't. I would think not to for him. Maybe for others that you know, each each thing leads you to the next. And um, I mean, he did go through some really troubling things. He also became really interested in sort of fascist um, mm -hmm. technologies. Yeah. You know how uh, and how that kind of performance could be used to shape consciousness for. Um, nefarious ends, mm -hmm. right? For self-serving ends. 
for totalitarian ends. Um, and he later was embarrassed by that. You know, mm-hmm. he, he, he talked a lot about that at length, but again, I think it all, it's even those, it's, it's even in those mistakes and those errors that we get to the next thing. So I, I think, uh, the last album in particular is, is, is very heavy with, uh, symbols from all of, from his whole catalog, really. I, I I had similar thoughts listening to it, but uh, thank you for that. So our next question is also on strange frequencies. Um, so in that book, you explore the use of technology as it pertains to paranormal investigations. And since that book's release, I'm thinking last one or two years, there's been a whole new suite of gadgets that have been released onto the market, uh, such as LiDAR scanners for smartphones, SLS cameras, and next generation spirit boxes, which can slow the phrases down that get detected by the system. Um, now, we often have discussed how ultimately we don't really know how any of this stuff works from a metaphysical perspective or if we're just fooling ourselves with static effectively. So with that in mind, do you see a value in our continued efforts to invent our way through a phenomenon which may be entirely spiritual or maybe even psychological in nature? So. I think I'm going to. uh quote Umberto Echo from uh, Foucault's Pendulum. Mm-hmm. I talked about this before. I think I mentioned it in, in Strange Frequencies. In mm-hmm. fact, where mm-hmm. one of the characters in that book says, you know, don't mistake metaphysics for mechanics. Right. And so I think all of these are can be tools for play. And I don't, again, I don't mean play to mean frivolous or not of value. Right. It's about a play of consciousness. It's about yeah. enchantment. Right. It's about allowing ourselves to be open, even if just inside of that moment to, um, a, a new s- sense of, of, of wonder or what could be possible. But when we try to, well, for myself, I, you know, and I've seen it, but it seems more often than not that when we get into trouble, um, is when we try to literalize those experiences or construct perfectly synchronous cosmologies that everything lines up, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and I just, you know, part of the problem is, is, and, and I'm sure there are people who would disagree with me on this. Um, but I, those things are not, uh, measurable and repeatable in the same way that other kinds of phenomena are. And I do think that, um, I mean, the interesting thing about technology and the, and the supernatural is, and where I do think that it has more to do with the imagination and play is because you're taking a device like your s- smartphone mm-hmm. and the scientific method that has made that possible, the same uh, tools necessary for that, for the scientific method to work so that you can have a cell phone, mm-hmm. repeatability mm-hmm. or falsifiability, the use of that scientific method would say that speaking to spirits is not possible. <laughs> right. Okay. So, but what you have suddenly though is something about technology because we are the ones interacting with it and the personal becomes part of the can becomes part of the circuit that the same rules don't feel like they apply like it it doesn't seem irrational to say the thing that says that this phone works the thing that made this phone possible mm. if i believe that by using it it must be true why don't I trust it when it says this other thing about spirits? Right. right. Um, and yet, um, something about technology, once it moves out of the realm of that theoretical, because we have access to it and we feel like we can manipulate it and we can, we can impress upon it and impose upon it our own desire it somehow actually changes its function, literally. Mm-hmm. You know, it's fascinating to me that that, that that happens when we are dealing with something like that 
Um, but it also goes, you know, I don't want to get controversial here, but Pat Oswalt said in a tweet, um, something like, I'm paraphrasing, you know, mm-hmm. we have, we have, we have supercomputers in our pockets and robots on Mars, but we still think that these COVID vaccines were made with wizard blood. (laughs) (laughs) So there's this idea. I love that, man. There are some ways in which we absolutely accept without question the things that make the technology that we use possible. But at, but it's it can we can stretch it out to a point, and when it comes to our spiritual sensibilities, our our religious, our, our called our spiritual imaginations, yes, I think those things are more flexible, but in play, and I think that again, when we get into the literal, um, we start to lose. I think we, I actually think, the more literal we get around religious and occult beliefs the less enchanted uh, we are. I think enchantment requires ambiguity. Mm-hmm. It requires ambiguity. It requires sitting in a liminal place, a place of, of tension. Mm-hmm. It isn't a binary. It isn't yes or no. And once we go to yes or no, it, it just dissolves, Right. Right. Um, that's actually something we've encountered with some of the books we've covered, uh, because there is a an impulse in some paranormal books to catalog everything uh, yeah. to say, well, here are the six kinds of ghosts and here's how they interact and here's what they do. <laughs> and uh, right. every time we have the conversation of how could you possibly know that? Right. Um, <laughs> obviously. So uh, kind of thinking about that idea of enchantment, uh, I w- was reminded of something we talked about earlier regarding role playing games. Um and kind of how, I don't know, I've had this happen where I've been in a game and I've been in a conversation and character and I get so invested in it that I kind of forget the world. I am in that world and I am mad at this person who in all likelihood is my roommate and they're perfectly fine people. Um, but that kind of liminal space, it, it, very, it seems very similar. We're basically, no matter what the tool is, uh, interfacing with the occult is just about getting getting there, uh, right. whatever you're going to, whatever's yes, going I to mean, get you I, there. I love this idea of the, I mean, I think to, to take extended to D and D, let's say you are in a, your role playing, um, in a situation where you end up in this particular realm or a, even say a, a wizard's tower somewhere, and you are able to create an actual taxonomy of ghosts. There are these six types of ghosts mm-hmm. that exist in this wizard's tower. And they have these abilities and they have these characteristics and you know you need to interact with them in this way. You need to communicate with them using these um, these things. You have to have this herb here. You have to have this rock here. You have to, that'd be a great game, yeah. right? All about these six, this taxonomy of ghosts in this tower. So that idea, that play, that wonderful play that could happen like that and you'd said, be totally invested. Why we can take that and we can move it over into playing with our, our iPhones and mm-hmm. communicating with these six ghosts. And they can be just in that same liminal consciousness so that when we put the phone down, I guess it kind of does dissolve for a while, but it, it doesn't make it less real or more real or anything. It's just... It's a moment of enchantment that, yes, it does speak to a certain kind of mystery of things. It does speak to serendipities. It does speak maybe really to the ways in which there is something about the universe and our relationship to it where maybe there are really some cracks sometimes where mm-hmm. things, mm-hmm. you know, break in. Um, and we can completely embrace those and 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 play with them and talk about them and write about them and dream about them and all those things right uh but i think role playing is is a really great um just to think that as a state of consciousness that can mm-hmm. be brought into all these different parts of our lives especially when we're dealing with things like the supernatural and the occult all of this is kind of uh 
it's kind of uh, ironic or synchronistic or however you want to look at it, especially because what we're talking, like the question that led to this conversation was us talking about technology, right? And earlier today, I was, you know, spending time on Twitter, like, like I do. And one of um, uh, somebody uh, that I, I, you've had a conversation with as well, uh, Greg Newkirk tweeted out about, Great guy. yeah, I, I, I love, I, I love them. Um, you know, we're big Hellier fans and I am a member of the museum. So I remember I was actually in watching your uh, conversation about strange frequencies with them. That was, oh, yeah. that was really Never cool. Um, and, uh, but so he had tweeted out about like technology talking about, uh, about it. And it made me think like, ultimately if when I sit down with a, a spirit box or a recorder, like, yeah, we don't necessarily know the science behind it. But like you said, um, the act, of, what if it is the act of doing it and me interacting with it with the expectation that it, that it's going to work is why it, why it's reacting. The phenomenon reacts to us because we're putting the, the energy, the effort, whatever it is into that thing that it reacts accordingly. And that's yes. like the whole thing made me think that's this whole conversation has made like kind of reinforce that same kind of thought that it's like, yeah, you know, maybe it's our consciousness reacting to whatever the greater, you know, the greater phenomenon might be, be it some kind of universal consciousness or whatever. Um, that because I am so adamant that I think that this will work or I believe that this will work and I'm interacting with it and I'm playing with it, like you said, that eventually, yeah, it, it does. It reacts yeah, or back. even if you're just afraid that it will work. Right, exactly. Right? I mean, even just that kind of like, um, one of the things I talk about in Strange Frequencies is a reel-to-reel tape recorder that had belonged to my father mm -hmm. and being given some advice that I should use that tape recorder to try to communicate with him. Um, he had passed away. And I went into it of, of all, I would say of, of all occult, I'm, I'm sorry to say, and I, I really don't want to disparage any, I, I just want to be honest, of all the sort of occult supernatural phenomena, I am probably the most skeptical of EVP phenomena, just whatever reason. Mm -hmm. well, that's, that's completely fair. Yeah. 100% yeah. understandable. Yeah. Um, but, but when I sat down with that same skepticism, to potentially to to ask my the spirit of my dead father if he would communicate with me through this real to real tape deck, my instinct was, wait a minute now, maybe I don't want to hear <laughs> the voice of my dead father yeah. come through with this real to real tape recorder, and I could feel the tension there mm -hmm. of just being. Here's what it is even entering into a state of consciousness where that could possibly be true mm -hmm. creates the state of consciousness where it is true. Right. Right. Um, and that, that is, that's it, it like folds in on itself. And for that moment that I asked my father, if he was there, if he would speak to me through this paper recorder, I believe why, if I didn't believe I couldn't even ask the question. Right. But it doesn't mean that now I believe that the whole phenomena will always work and it works exactly like this and my father is here in the room and all that. I mean, it's not to say that I don't have moments where I feel him or right. experience mm -hmm. things in a certain way. But in those ritualized moments, right, those are the important moments where we get to enter into that really special space and play. Um, I think, again, it just depends on um, what happens when we, we walk away from it. And I also think it matters when we're trying to exploit others, mm -hmm. say for monetary reasons or other reasons, right? That gets into a whole other thing. I mean, look, the truth of the history of the occult and the supernatural is replete with cons and grifters and right. I mean, it's just, even today you can sign up for map, you know, courses in magic that mm -hmm. will win you the love of, you know, the, the sexual partner of your dream or whatever. You yep. know? Um, that's not to say though, that there probably aren't some really efficacious, say, um, Wiccan spells, uh, for love that put you into, uh, 
uh, a state of consciousness that makes you more open to receiving or being aware of where love might be for you in your life, right? Mm-hmm. Kind of on that note, uh, one thing that we talked about regarding Season of the Witch was uh, Black Sabbath. I mean, a lot of what they did was to build a brand, um, as you talk about in the book. And one thing that uh, we were wondering is if someone was at home, they took images or they took inspiration from Black Sabbath and it allowed them to enter into that liminal space. uh, Does it matter that it's predicated on an illusion ultimately or a lie? But it's not an illusion or a lie. That's the thing is it's it's it is the it's that's if it's an illusion or a lie, then that's saying that the say the shaman when they're using sounds and ventriloquism and whistles and noise and costume to elucidate the 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 tribe or the community to experience that that's that's an illusion and it's not that's it's act i mean if anything that's magic that's where the real magic is taking place it's in mm-hmm. that transmission right um the illusion can happen i think when you ban the Black Sabbath record because you say that the devil actually is trying to possess somebody or um, you go and kill, skin a cat alive because you think that the black, right? There's ways in which the, it, it's no law. It, again, it's a disenchantment is the law, yeah. right? And the disenchantment is in the literalizing of what is that magical transmission between the performer and the audience. It's a fascinating answer. Thank yeah. you very much. Yeah. And, and, and very different than the takes that we took when we yeah. were taught, when we were talking about, or not, not even very different. Ultimately we came to the same conclusion. We just said it in a very different way. Uh, yeah. Now, our last question, as we are running up on time, uh, is an easy one. I'm sure you've been asked it plenty of times before. What's next for Peter Biebergel and where can our listeners find your work? Um, well, the most recent thing I did was I edited an anthology called Appendix N, uh, which is a collection of short stories uh, drawn mostly from uh, Advanced Dungeons and Dragons Dungeon Master's Guide Edition 1, which is Appendix N, Gary Gygax's list of inspirational reading material. Mm-hmm. It's a collection of, uh, you know, I sort of curated from that list in a few other places. Uh, or what I felt sort of acted as kind of like a D&D a collection of stories that felt to me like the D&D I played when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, that's available. Uh, and um, I'm working on uh, this uh, magical sort of role-playing experience with Gareth. I actually am about to... Um, about days away with a friend of mine, uh, J. Oh, uh, JF Martell. Do you know Weird Studies podcast? I, I've heard, I, I know what I've no, I haven't listened to it, but I know of it. Yeah. Yeah. JF, uh, he and I are days away from turning in a manuscript for a Call of Cthulhu, uh, module that we wrote. Nice. Very together. cool. Um, and, um, uh, and then I'm just hoping to do another, uh, I think some, you know, large cultural history, uh, in a related form uh, to what I've been doing. I'm very interested in the role-playing and magic Mm -hmm. project. Very interested. We are definitely going to cover that on the show. Yeah, hopefully you'll hear more about that soon, I hope. Yeah. Awesome. All right, well, uh, thank you so, so much for your time. This has been a blast. It has been very, very enlightening for us. Um, Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank Thank you you so much. Yeah, great to talk to you all. Of course. All right. Well, I think that's the end. So have a great night. Okay. Be well. You too. Bye.